Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts, one of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer. And you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep. All you need to do is go to beer52.com party. That's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. And cover just £5.95 for the postage. And you'll get eight globally sourced fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep. You don't even need to leave the house. Think of it as a kind of cabinet of eight great beers. Each month, Beer 52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world. Recent cases have included beer from the Alps, New Zealand, the USA, Ireland, Korea and Germany. So if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different, Beer 52's Craft Beer Discovery Club is for you. And if you do change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like. Every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack. Just go to beer52.com slash party and get your first case of eight beers for £5.95. That's beer52.com slash party. Hello and welcome to the Political Party. It feels like ages since the last episode. I'm so sorry. I had a guest book last week. And I started the Zoom call, and they didn't come on the Zoom call, and I waited for a while on the Zoom call, and they never joined the Zoom call. So um, I sent them a polite email, and then it turned out actually they had emailed me, but it had gone into my junk folder, which I'm sure you've had this. It's a nightmare. The lesson from this is check your junk folder regularly, because there are important emails in there you are totally missing out on. So uh, hopefully I will rebook that guest for the future. So apologies. It just feels like ages now. Doing this interview today... It was like going back to school after the six weeks holidays. I was like, oh man, it feels so weird being back. I think I've grown a bit. Um, I should have treated myself to a new bag and maybe a new pencil, one of those Pepsi Max pencil cases I used to have. But um, today's guest is Lena Moran and she's standing to be the leader of the Liberal Democrats. Next week, Ed Davey, uh, her opponent, will be on the show. So really fascinating fortnight where we'll talk to both um, leadership contenders for the Lib Dems. And obviously, there's so much to talk about with the Lib Dems because they've not really been part of the conversation for a number of reasons. Obviously, what's happened in the Labour Party has been a, a, a arguably a more interesting story and, and, a, and a bigger story so far. But the Lib Dems are still there and they are considering their future and where do they go and where do they position themselves. So it was brilliant talking to Layla about how do the Lib Dems get into a conversation when Labour have got this shiny new leader that is really impressing people um, and the Tories have a really defined identity. Uh, How do the Lib Dems fit in? How do they push into that space? How do they take votes off both parties? What is the party's policy on Brexit and the European Union in the future? So this, the, it, this is just such a brilliant wide-ranging conversation. And with some personal stuff as well, um, 
with Layla about uh, about her life, and um, I won't say any more than that. But it's it's a brilliant chat, and I began by asking Layla how hard it is to campaign in a leadership election during a lockdown. It's so weird. Um, I'm I'm such a people person, and you know the way that I'd normally get the buzz from the campaign is you'd be in a big room full of people, and they'd be like, "Yes!" and you know you get that energy. And at the moment, all I can do is we're doing all these like massive Zoom calls with people up and down the country, and it does mean that you know actually I've had a meeting with three quarters of Lib Dem parties over the last few weeks. So on that side, it's good because you can get around faster. You literally zoom from one to the other using Zoom. But on the other, I'm getting quite good, I think, of reading the Zoom room. Um, But it's just not the same. It's just not the same. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't thought of you having to... Because when you're in a liberal club or a, or a pub or whatever, wherever you have your meetings, you can you get sent to the atmosphere in a room. Yeah. On a Zoom, if people are all muted, and they're all just tiny little thumbnails, I mean, it must be it must be impossible to know how well you're doing. Yeah, it's really. It, I, I think I am getting better at it. Um, and it's got a lot to do with the frequency of the nodding or the, you know, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and if they're, if they're looking off into the distance doing something else, I mean, that's a pretty sure sign you've lost them. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, yeah, as a, you know, there's a part of politics that is performance and knowing your audience, being able to read your audience is an important part of it. And that is definitely not the same. So it's been quite the learning curve. I mean, I, I will have to see. We start uh the next phase of this campaign where we've got the hustings uh where we are going to be sort of the head to head and they're going to have you know potentially hundreds of people in the zoom rooms um and i'm just i don't know how that's going to turn out we'll have to see and how are they going to work are you going to do that at a venue where you and ed are behind podiums or will you just be in your house and he'll be in his and you'll just do it all of it will be done remotely it's a combination of the two. So there's some uh, sort of themed ones where I think uh, the party has kind of hired out a studio and we're going to protect, you know, like behind the podiums as you might be during a general election, which is great. And yes. apart from anything else, it'd be quite nice to have some people in 3D around me. That'd be great. Um, but actually the vast majority are going to be uh, like how you and I are talking right now. So on the screen, doing our best to work out how many nods per second we're getting uh, and <laughs> will tell us how well we're doing, I guess. I mean, obviously people will vote according to their values and, their, you know, whether they want the party to move in a particular direction. But there is something about a leadership contest where the candidates get to show what they would look and feel like as a leader and being on telly behind a podium is part of the yeah. language of modern political leadership. And you've kind of been robbed of the opportunity to show that you can do that. Yeah, and I think the other bit of it, I mean, for me, I love giving a good sort of tub thumping, lots of people in a room, woo, speech, and you just can't do that in this format. So I do think there's a small part of me that maybe is not going to be expressed in this way. But we have some old footage, so, you know, maybe we'll get to show people that more to come when coronavirus hopefully uh, passes, but who knows when that's going to be. Well, that's the other challenge, isn't it? And maybe it doesn't matter too much because it's an internal party election, but everyone's life around the world is totally been taken over by the virus in every way, whether it's the public health element, the economic element, the social element. There's a major party in the UK having a leadership contest at the moment, and it, it, it's barely on the news. People aren't really talking about it. I mean, does that matter? 
Well, I think it does to an extent. I mean, of course, the Lib Dems always tend to do better when we've got that coverage. And that's always been the case. It's one of the reasons why certainly at the beginning of general elections, we tend to have a bit of a surge because people you know, suddenly have that equal coverage that you don't normally get. Um, but coronavirus has definitely been difficult um, for everybody. And we have to do this in a way that's respectful. And I think do it in a way that's really mindful of the situation that we're in politically. Uh, but one of the messages that I want to try and get across is actually coronavirus is this opportunity for the party because society is suddenly looking at itself differently in a way that's really about community and helping each other. I love how well I've got to know my neighbours more than I did before um, and helping out, you know, there's a lovely lady across the road who um, I didn't really speak to very often and she's been shielding so we've been checking up on her and making sure she's okay and actually that kind of community-minded spirit is so Lib Dem, it's such a Lib Dem way of viewing the world and I think that there is this moment now where if we are going to renew the party, which frankly is what we need to do, I mean we ended the last general election on 12% and 11 MPs but we're now at six, uh, we, we absolutely need to enter a period now of revival and renewal coronavirus in a way is that platform for us for us to say to people look at us again actually a lot of the stuff that you value is part of our principles and values we are on your side when you want a different britain actually it's the britain that we talk about all the time um so it's not all doom and gloom i think we need to provide people with that hope and i think there is space for a lib dem shaped party as a major force in political life at the moment but uh, yeah we've got to make that case now and, and then deliver on it over the next four years and it's such a big challenge because obviously at a time of crisis, the government absolutely dominates the airwaves. Until recently, they were doing daily press conferences. They're, they're everywhere. And then Keir Starmer's the new kid on the block, and he's really impressed people, and he's providing an alternative vision. So in a weird way, this I take the point about the, the political opportunity that a crisis gives a party, but in a, it's also just such a... a uh, an appalling time for you because there is a new alternative that's you know the, the problems you described with the Lib Dems obviously Labour electoral woes are different but they're a different size party but they've kind of been through the same thing they made themselves irrelevant and now they've got a shiny new leader who people identify with more and think is better than the current Prime Minister according to certain polls so in a way Keir Starmer's scratching the itch that you would have scratched I mean how do you how do you force yourself into a debate where you're not just trying to contrast yourself against the Tory government, which might be a bit easier. You're also trying to contrast yourself against a Labour Party that seems to be sorting its act out. Yeah. And actually, that is one of the reasons why I want to be leader at this time, because I think I carve out that space in a different way to Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer. And what we need to do, we are the plucky insurgent third national party. That's what we need to do. We need to also modernize and i think there's it's been quite interesting looking at polls but also if you scratch underneath the polls there has been since brexit and it was starting over brexit and i think it's continued since this sort of realignment in british politics and everyone assumed that it would happen at party level but actually it seems to have happened in the electorate and you know people who had classically all their lives considered themselves labor voters have gone tory meanwhile the tories have moved so far right that they've lost a lot of their moderate votes and then that's where the opportunity is for us now because there is vacated ground from both sides and i think the answer to that is not a left right argument it's a liberal argument 
you know, so on the one hand, we are a party that talks about strong public services. I'm a teacher. That's my background. That's how I got into politics in the first place. And in the campaign, I, I want three pillars for us to talk about education, the environment and the economy. Education is about strong public services that really chimes with both Labour voters and Tory voters, the environment again, but also the young. I mean, look, at uni, I voted Lib Dem because it was the cool thing to do. That's just not the case anymore. And actually that recapturing of the young votes, what we need to do. But on the economy, we need to have the credible answers and using business as a lever in achieving those societal aims is actually very Tory voter friendly. So we can take votes off all sides. And if you look at the seats that we need to win, which are primarily conservative facing, the magic source, the formula for Lib Dems is to set up the Lib Dem as the main candidate against the Tories, gather round the centre-left voters around them, the Greens, Labour, whoever else is there, make them see that if they want to get rid of the Tories, that's who you need to vote for, but also take votes off the Tories. And I think the circumstances that we're in now are ideal for delivering that strategy. So that's what we now need to do. They kind of they kind of would be ideal if Labour was still led by Jeremy Corbyn. That no, would make, I disagree. That would make life so I, much easier for you. I completely disagree because what happens, you see, Matt, on in an election, is that and this happened here uh, in Oxford West and Abingdon. I overturned in 2017. It was a 10,000 nearly Tory majority, and we just squeaked in. We pioneered the whole progressive alliance thing, which included uh, the. Tories uh, coming over who were Remainer Tories and it was against a hard Brexit whatever and at the last election we did it again so I increased my majority to over 50% which I'm delighted to say is the best in the seat's history but I feel a bit robbed um, because I reckon it would have been even higher had it not been for Jeremy Corbyn and what was happening the week before the election is I was knocking on doors and people were going I love what you do I love what you stand for you know completely different way of doing politics brilliant but I cannot vote Labour, vote Lib Dem, because I'm concerned about Labour, I'm concerned about Jeremy Corbyn, so they voted Tory. And so actually with that dynamic gone, in a lot of those seats that are Tory facing, I know it's counterintuitive, but that's what happened, that's what stopped us from delivering a lot of those Tory facing seats. And you combine that with Labour activists often flooding into Lib Dem seats, wielding pitchforks and shouting, you are yellow Tories, you're all the same. Actually that's where the strategy is. Keir Starmer is a good thing for us in those Tory facing seats, but the second part of the strategy is going to be harder to deliver, which is about how do we stop fighting each other in seats where only we can win against Boris Johnson. And that's the other big thing that whoever the next leader is, and I hope it's me, is going to have to, to do. And it's about earning trust back, not just with Labour voters and activists on the ground, but also with the Labour Party as a whole. But do you position yourself to the left of Keir Starmer then? Is that, where you, is that where you need to stick yourself? Absolutely not. No. And in fact, um, there is a bit of a misunderstanding going on right now, because what I have said in the past is I do think we should be more radical than Labour. And what I mean by that is this is very much in the tradition of, of, Ken, of Charles Kennedy, of, of Paddy Ashdown. It's the rage against the machine. The system is broken. You know, the, Westminster isn't getting this right. We need to change the world, you know, so it's that. And where I think there is a USP for the Lib Dems is about localism. 
because at the moment you've got two big parties who think that the answer to everything is for the state to do it all. It's very top down. The Lib Dem approach is about empowering the citizen. You, you deserve all the power to your elbow to lead the life that you choose. And that bottom up approach is, the, is that Lib Dem approach. That's pretty radical, actually. Um, but what I found interesting about the conversation that's been had thus far in the campaign is people seem to have forgotten what liberalism is. And it's what I just described. It's about power to you. And the job of the state is to give you that power and support you through it. And if you don't have an NHS and if you don't have good welfare and if you don't have good education, then you can't lead that life. So that's why we champion public services. Um, but that's a pretty radical position. And I think there's an appetite out there for this now. Coronavirus has made, it's like, it's held up a mirror to society. And it's, people feel like they don't want to go back to how it was. It, it's not good. There are kids going to bed hungry tonight. There's kids who can't access education because they don't have laptops. Universal credit means that people are falling through the cracks. Something's wrong. Something's deeply, deeply wrong in society. And I think that, that change, that positive vision for the future, that's the space that we should be occupying as Lib Dems. I mean, I, t I, I think that's a, a space I would hope all mainstream parties would want to occupy. But I suppose it's just about how do you cut through when you've got a new Labour leader that, that is doing well so far? Obviously, he has huge problems in his own party that he has to address, and that may unfold over the course of the Parliament. But how do you, how do you sort of barge your way in to what, fe what feels like quite a sort of a narrow political conversation? Well, I think you do it by actually broadening what you're talking about. So you start by listening. And I think one of the things I want to make the case to the party too is that we can't keep going as we are. You know, we, we absolutely can't. If, if we don't change, if we don't adapt to the new political landscape as it is now, then I'm really concerned for our future. And we shouldn't start by saying, we have this as the answer. Actually, the first, my first instinct after the last disastrous election um, was actually to stop and take stock and say, okay, we're, we're getting something wrong. We're clearly getting something wrong. This is now the second election in, third election in a row, where it's, it's just been, you, you wake up the next day and you feel like you want to cry. And, and we have to stop that. You know, this is, this is not healthy um, for a political party. So what are we doing wrong? And my first instinct was actually to go door knocking and to go talk to voters about what they think is going wrong. And what they said to me was two things. One, that for various reasons, they'd lost trust with the party. Now for some, it was over coalition and tuition fees and actually younger voters mentioned this a lot. And also labor facing voters mentioned this a lot. It might not be the first thing they talk about. Most people frankly have forgotten, but if you ask them about why they say trust and then you dig, dig a bit deeper, that's where it comes from. Among Tory-facing voters who might consider voting for us, it was about revoke. And the feeling that revoke, whilst it was a logical conclusion of stop Brexit, and I stand by it on those grounds, and I defended it on those grounds, if you, politics these days isn't just about the head, it's also about being able to speak to people's hearts. And what that told people in their hearts was, here's this democratic bottom-up party that claims to be all about power to the citizen, and the revoke policy was really top down. It was like, we're gonna get in on a mandate of less than 50% and we're going to inflict this on the country. And the disconnect between the two broke that trust. So trust is really important. 
But the second thing that they kept raising was, well, you're irrelevant. <laughs> What's the point of voting for you if you can't achieve anything, if you're not going to do anything? And I think that does set a challenge for us. And what it says to me is, first of all, actually, there's one thing that we love as Lib Dems, and it's local government. And it just underlies to us why we need to keep electing councillors, why that grassroots community campaigning really matters. Because when you do that pavement politics stuff, you ask people what they think, they tell you something they're annoyed about, you fix it. It builds credibility in our brand. And actually, the people said that they love their local councils. The problem was at their national level. It was with us here in Westminster. And what we now need to do is to work out from this position, how do we affect change? So over the last few weeks, um, I've delivered and I've uh, started a campaign that was successful. And I think I'm one of the few backbenchers in Parliament that, that has done this in this time. And it was over the coronavirus compensation scheme. And this was a very Lib Dem campaign because it started with a surgery in my constituency. It was done actually through BBC Oxford and it was public and a chap texts in. And he says uh, anonymously, um, and he's a radiographer at the local hospital. And it was right at the beginning of coronavirus and everyone was just not sure what the hell was going on. And he said, I've got a wife who's also in the NHS and I've got a nine year old daughter and we don't have close family. And I just don't know what I would do if I passed away or my wife passed away, what we would do with her and her financial future. And my heart broke. I mean, I could hear it in what he was saying. And I, of course, said, yes, I'm going to go away and look at is there a compensation scheme? He asked for, is there an army style compensation scheme? And I said, I'll look. And there isn't. And there wasn't anyway. And so we started this campaign in Parliament. And the way you achieve things in Parliament from the position we are now is you gather support from across the House. And I had some, you know, backbench Conservative MPs, Labour MPs, Green MPs, everyone was backing this. And we got to about 100 people, but it's not enough. And then we teamed up forces with a very unlikely bedfellow for Lib Dems anyway, which is the Daily Express newspaper. Now, the only time that I tend to make it in the Daily Express newspaper is when they're having a crack at me for being a Ramona. Like they don't really tend to do positive things with Lib Dems. And we got, we got this text saying, we love this campaign. It's just the right thing to do. We're gonna help you deliver it. And they put it on their front pages for several days running, ran op-eds, credited me and the party for leading this charge across Parliament, which is just, as I say, I nearly fell off my chair. And um, they used their one question at the number 10 briefing to push the government to do this. And I'm delighted to say two weeks later, Matt Hancock announced that there is now £60,000 for those grieving families who have lost their lives to covid in the fight for our country. And I'm really proud of that. And the reason why that matters though, in the context of what we've just been talking about is that Lib Dems have to show that they can deliver now. Because if you're gonna answer that relevance and that credibility question, then it's all very well pointing to whatever you might have achieved in the past. But if you can't do it now, then what's the point? So we have to build up a repertoire of, we are going to listen to you, we are gonna deliver things and you can see that we are relevant now. And that's a reason to vote for us. How do you rebuild trust, though? Because that can take so much time for parties to get that back. And I don't know how you do it. If people are still annoyed about the coalition, which I kind of agree with you. I'm not sure how many people actually are. And I think, that feel, I think that's something that people sometimes feel like is an easy thing to say. They go, oh, well, it's the coalition, because everyone knows it was kind of unpopular in retrospect. Um, but how do you get those people back? 
How do you yeah. rebuild trust? Yeah. And, and as I say, I don't think it was just coalition. I think, I think the last campaign really hurt us. Um, you build back trust. Well, it takes a lifetime to gain and it can take mm. a moment to get rid of, right? And the story of both coalition and revoke is a story of where a politician and particularly a politician from our perspective says they're going to do one thing and then does something else that's when you lose trust so first of all we have to show that we've understood that and i think hopefully people through this contest can see that we've understood that and people have apologized for coalition you know nick clegg did it tunefully didn't he uh, <laughs> joe swinson did it at the last campaign do you think so it's all very apologize yeah. it has been apologized for and i don't think it necessarily on its own makes a difference no, because there's also a lot of it there was also a lot of it that was brilliant and i will happily defend and in fact the other day michael gove tried to take credit for the pupil premium which was ours but the thing is it's a bit like saying do you regret bits of when you were a teenager like there were bits that were brilliant there were bits that frankly you would rather forget but they did happen the point is you win back trust by saying actually we've learned so it's not about whitewashing your past and it's not about saying i wish it didn't happen even it's actually saying it did happen it happened but these are the lessons we've learned from it and now we are going to move on we are going to move forwards and we're going to look forwards and the problem we have at every general election it comes up again and then people say well you're saying this and your voting record says that and it takes up time and every time that you're explaining something about the past then you're not campaigning on something about the future so that's where i think we need to be now you know let's draw a line under it show that we've learned the lessons talk about the future and then campaign on how we're going to change the country and yeah it's not going to be easy and we're but we have four years and i think that's the other thing that's really important to point out to people you know we've got i don't see boris johnson giving this up easily <laughs> i don't see him calling an early election and frankly he's got a, a lot to, to do between now and then uh, to rebuild some of the trust that he's losing in the country too so i just don't see that happening anytime soon we've got four years to rebuild some of that trust uh, but it's, it's not going to be easy i think there's a risk to apologizing if you're a politician particularly mm. as a party because people it's not that people resent you going into coalition with the Tories. That, that was a logical thing to do, and, and people expected you to do it, and they were understanding of why, I think, on the whole. Um, apart from people who would never vote for you anyway. But uh, I think when you apologise, it, I think it can it weakens sometimes... weakens you. Well, it absolutely weakens you, yeah. You kind of... It's a kind of collective... Dis I mean, I understand why people do it. They just want the pain to end. And I think, yeah. well, look, I've said sorry. What more do you want? But people yeah. do want more from their politicians. And I think... It's like you were saying about scratching the surface of some of those polls is people may say the coalition and they may not have liked it, but it's more complex than that. And people would still, I think, defend your right to have gone into a coalition with the Tories. And I don't think they actually minded it that much. Left-wing people didn't like it because it was a Tory government or a Tory-led government. But I think if you get into self-flagellating yourself about the past... yeah. I think it, it, you, know, you look like a party that's punishing yourself if you're not. Getting... No, you're right. And, and the reason why it, it's coming up is because I think people, you know, feel that it's, it's easy. It's the easy fix, but it's not. It absolutely is not. Um, but I do think back to the conversations I was having with voters and the fact that they were bringing up that quite spontaneously. I think we do need to find the answer. And I, the way I would express it is if you can imagine a friend of yours has done something wrong by you 
saying sorry isn't enough actually you want to know that they've learned and they've changed and you know they they are going to be a better person and they can take it and i think that's what we now need to show and we can do it by making the case for liberalism again you know making the case for why every child should have a brilliant world-class education so that they can make the most of their lives we've got an economy that is tanking and we have to protect people but especially the most vulnerable and especially young people and if we aren't the party that's going to lead that green revolution then who is you know we were the party of back in the day in the 60s and 70s that started talking about global warming as it was incorrectly known then i mean we have that history of doing this and in the last parliament you know i was the one who raised climate change for the first time on the floor of the house in two and a half years. We brought Greta Thunberg over to hold Michael Gove to account. That was a great day. You know, we need to capture this space and let's be forward facing. If we don't adapt as a party to the modern world and the modern politics, then we are going to continue to struggle. So where does the party stand on Brexit then if you win? Because obviously that was a huge opportunity for you because millions of people around the centre who were repelled by Jeremy Corbyn and were Remainers, were looking to the Lib Dems. And for a while, it seemed like it was going to lead to a really big breakthrough. And then, as you say, the revoke policy backfired. Brexit is obviously now happening. So under your leadership, would the Lib Dem policy be to rejoin at some point? Or is it just the debate's over? It debate is not over, 100%. I mean, my history is one of um, my parents met at university. My mum is Palestinian and um, while well, she was born in Palestine, she grew up in Jordan and then came over here to do her master's. She met my dad and I was born in Hammersmith, but then we moved away when I was one for him to go join the European Commission. So the whole of my childhood and he went to Ethiopia, Jamaica, Jordan, we traveled the world with his job. The first flag I ever drew was an EU flag. Is there any wonder I was at Lib Dem? I mean, honestly. The Express um, are going to go so quickly off you now. I know, you see. Well, they already know this. It's fine. It's fine. When you, when you find the bits of commonality, they get over it. Um, and uh, so the, if being part of the EU is part of my identity. And actually, that was the bit that really, that was why I cried the day of that referendum result. That is why, actually, bluntly, I was a bit depressed afterwards. I mean, I, I know I've been de properly depressed before. I know what it looks like. And I managed to get myself the help. And the six months after that referendum was very very difficult on a personal level because i felt that it in some way was changing my own view of myself and my identity um so under me of course we are going to be a party that will one day make the case for rejoin but we also have to recognize that to do that now would be utterly stupid um and also we have to start by making the case to the country for why we need to do that and whilst this COVID crisis is going on, we still have the prospect of a no deal Brexit or a hard Brexit on the cards. And we have to show people the difference between what could have been had we stayed and where the government is going to take us. And I mean, again, strange bedfellows that the newspaper that I am campaigning with on animals rights and environmental standards and food standards at the moment is actually the Daily Mail, um, because they can see that actually a lot of their readers care deeply about these things. They had had an assurance from the government that it wasn't gonna change. Meanwhile, Liz Truss is saying that she does want those to change so that she can get a deal with America. Well, you can't have one and the other, it's one or the other. 
And there is now this tussle going on in government. And clearly this country lies on the side of standards that are more close to the standards that we helped to build in the EU while we were part of it. And if the government deviates from that, there is that opportunity. There is the opportunity to show Tory voting Remainers or Leavers that this, what the government's doing, actually we can row back. So I think there's going to be over the next few years, multiple opportunities to try and change public opinion. But until we get to the point where there is a clear majority for a rejoin, I think it would be the wrong thing to campaigning on right now. Because you've got an opportunity, oddly, Brexit may still provide you an opportunity, given that Keir Starmer's position is it's basically over. Mm-hmm. And obviously the Tories are Brexit. In four or five years' time, at the time of the next election, you, it might actually be a point of difference between you and Labour again, where you can say, well, we're the real pro-Europeans. And if British public opinion is in a different place then, regarding our relationship with the EU, I mean, instinctively, what do you think? You know, let's say you win the leadership and you're in charge at the next election. What would your manifesto say about Europe if the climate was roughly like it is now? Would you say we rule out Ma. a referendum? Matt. What? That's four years ago. I know, but it's four not years, that long. It's not that long. Uh, is it not? Think back four years. What was what had just happened four years ago? We just voted to leave, and we're only just leaving. Exactly. Now. And we're only just and leaving. Look, now. and look how massively changed politics is. So your assumption that politics is going to be roughly the same as it is now, well, I, I just absolutely think it, is it nonsense. Politics would like, be it was, it was that British public opinion might be in a similar place, which is yeah. Got to I just, I just, I just honestly don't think that that is a a sane conversation to be having right now and actually what we need to keep doing is being nimble because you could also argue that at this moment in time with where we are in the country for the Lib Dems to say from now what is going to be like the big ticket issue that we need to absolutely ride at the next election is the wrong approach because we actually have some important rebuilding work to do first and it's listening to voters up and down the country about what they really care about right now to rebuild that trust and then if you then take a position like that they're much more likely to go do you know what they they're right on this they're right on that maybe they're right about this other thing and you can use that trust to then change their opinions so i I, and i know you you want an answer to this and would i love to have it on the front of our manifesto because public opinion has soared to 60 percent for rejoin and that becomes our big ticket of course I would love that. My goodness, that is the Lib Dem lottery. Um, but am I going to say from now that that's going to happen? I think we're looking at unicorns at the moment. Um, so let's, let's, con- let's, let's see where we go. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. burrow.com slash ACAST. Mm-hmm. 
And what about Lib Dem members then? What, what is their... Where do you think the Lib Dem membership is after the last election? And where are they now? Are they downtrodden? Are they downbeat? Are they optimistic? And, and where do you think Lib Dem members want the party to go? Well, I mean, this is the point of the leadership election, right? I think we're, we're going to find out. Um, and what I'm finding very interesting about the landscape, as I'm talking to members and voters, is there's actually a dual psyche that I'm sensing. And a lot of this is feeling, but hey, a lot of politics is feeling, isn't it? And on the one hand, it's they can see the opportunity that I see. You know, they can see that opportunity for change and not just in the country, but also in the party. And we've had a general election review that made the case for change and said that unless we change, we are going to keep hitting trouble. It also made the point that the decline in the party actually started before 2010. It's been 10 years now of us on the downward trajectory rather than an upward trajectory. So I think that case for change is there and people can see it. But on the other hand, I am sensing a, a reticence, a concern about where we are. You know, 6%, goodness, we've, we've tried to take risks before. It hasn't really worked out. Let's batten down the hatches. Let's, you know, just, just ride out this storm. My problem with the riding out the storm thing is that when you ride it out, you have no idea where you, ended up, where you end up. You have no sense of direction about where you're going to be. And there is a good chance you're going to end up in a worse position than you are now. And to take the analogy further, there's also a chance that the storm's going to get worse and you're going to end up with no ship at all. So actually, I would argue we need to use this opportunity to forge a direction, to forge a five to ten year plan for the party. And I want to be that leader. I want to be a leader that's not here for, you know, we're looking at potentially our fifth leader in as many years. We need to now have stability for the five to 10 year mark, not a one election leader, but at least two. And just like under Paddy and Charles, when we had that broad electoral appeal, when we were making the case for liberalism, when we were attracting votes off both the Tories and Labour by taking principled stances on usually actually foreign policy. Uh, and that's why often, you know, that Brexit thing worked for us. It's often foreign policy. And we just don't know when those opportunities are gonna come along. But we need to now change. And so it'll be interesting to see in the wider membership what they think. And if they can see that change and that need for change, then I'm their woman. But what, what's the party need to change to? I think they need to change to a party that is unafraid to talk about what it means to be liberal. And what I find really interesting is if you knock on a door, and as I said, I did a lot of this, and you ask people, what does it mean to be a Lib Dem? They have no clue. They often don't know. They will say, you know, you're, you're not the other party and they'll often define us in terms that we don't choose. Um, and they'll know for Labour and they'll know for the Conservatives. And actually it's about reasserting our own identity. So on the one hand, it's a, it's a party that stands up for the little guy. It's, a, it's the party that stands up for the individual against the state, that stands up for communities against the state, that in international spheres believes in cooperation and compassion. And that's why we had that stop Brexit stance, but we didn't adequately communicate that. And to me, success would be at the next election, if you knocked on a door and you said, well, what do the Lib Dems stand for? Actually, I'd love it if people just said freedom, you know, freedom to be yourself, to lead your best life. And our job as politicians is to recognize that we are your servants 
And what we need to do is to make society as good as it can so that you have the power to lead that life that you want. And what about the party itself? Does the party structure need to change at all? Or is the kind of party in an okay shape? It's just, it's just upset that it's been beaten a couple of times. No, I think actually there is broad agreement across the whole of the party that there are big structural changes that need to be made. And we had a really um, fantastic general election review that was warts and all. And I love that. You know, actually, let's, we are also a party of openness and transparency. Well, you've got to be so honest let's with live yourself, our yeah. values. And uh, in it, it, it had a whole raft of recommendations from the size of our federal board to the way that local parties are, are governed. And actually, what was interesting about it, and I've noticed this for a long time, is that as a party, we will say to people out there, we believe in your power, we believe in uh, bottom-up politics. But actually, if you look at how our party's structured, it's not how we do it. <laughs> Actually, there was a sense that it's very top down, uh, that people were really imposed upon at the last election, that ordinary activists who were close in on the ground, who actually would have been in a really good position to tell us what a disaster revoke would have been, felt frozen out of that equation. And so we do need to absolutely change uh, what we do. And one of the things that I'm hoping this leadership election is going to be is that strong mandate to deliver the change. But actually, the general election review means that we're not tussling over space about what that is. It's actually pretty well documented. And we need to now just get on with delivering it in time to change uh, for the next election. Just coming back to the crisis for a second, obviously, so much of this week's news has been about the economic impact and the help that certain sectors are getting and that other sectors aren't. But just thinking to the time, you know, once the public health element of the crisis is over and there's a, hopefully there's a vaccine or we find a way that society can reopen fully, there's a big bill that the country has. What is your take and what is your policy on, on how the UK handles that huge debt? Is it spending cuts? Is it tax increases? Or is it living with a high level of public borrowing for a sustained period of time. Yeah, thanks. Well, first of all, I mean, to your point around the strategy for COVID, and yesterday I um, launched the all-party parliamentary group for coronavirus. And what we are trying to do is to do a rapid inquiry into what's gone right and wrong, a lot of it wrong, but still something's right, in time for a potential second wave that might happen in autumn, winter. And one of the things that we discussed is actually what is the government strategy? What is it? Is it zero COVID? Is it herd immunity? Where are they going with this? Because they can't have both at the same time. If you're going to head the zero COVID, you are going to have to take a hit to the economy. And it's interesting that those countries that did decide early on that zero COVID was what they were aiming for, New Zealand and others, have now been able to have that V-shaped recession, that deep dip, and now their economies are fully opening. My concern is that actually we're probably headed for a W-shaped recession where we're going to have a little bit of an uplift now. We're already seeing, you know, Leicester being an early example, but the potential for more of that to happen, the government losing control of it, we go back into lockdown in, in winter, and then we come out the other side and hope and pray that there is a vaccine that might take us at some point to zero COVID. Um, but we just don't know what that government strategy is. So the first step is actually to clarify that and to push the government. And my own view is that it should be a zero COVID strategy. That's what we need to do. And it's about plowing money into uh, research. And it's 
about making sure that test, trace and isolate, which is the bit of the system that we still haven't got working, you know, this ridiculousness with the NHS app that's now had to change uh, the configuration of, because we knew, it, we were telling them it wasn't going to work and they haven't listened, they haven't learned from other countries. Let, we need to get that bit right. So that first bit is really, really important because that's then going to determine what happens next. But as a good liberal, look at what Keynes says. <laughs> And what Keynesian economics says is that at times of great crises, it is the right thing to do for the government to spend and to prop up that economy during this time. It's what they did during the Second World War. It's in fact what they did in the last pandemic. Um, and what you need to do during that time is to make sure that the economy is as robust as possible. My argument is that it needs to be linked to green jobs. It needs to change the way that society uh, operates for the better. Um, build back better is a much used phrase at the moment it's a phrase that the un in fact uses at the uh, tail end of disasters so that when you are putting money into something at this point in a crisis you actually take into account future resilience and if covid 19 is a crisis it pales into comparison for what uh, the climate and the nature crisis is that we're about to head into so we need to now build in a way that's sustainable but then after that point when and we may well be looking at five to ten years at this point um you are going to have to rebalance and to start bearing down on that debt so i think in the short term the government should not be worried about the debt they may even be looking at some monetization they may be looking at the bank of england sort of bailing it out and that nearly happened actually over the last few months it was quite scary they may be looking at you know releasing coronavirus bonds in the same way that after the second world war people were encouraged to buy war bonds you know it will have to see what they do the right thing to do now is to spend but afterwards when we do start to rebalance we don't repeat the mistakes of the past and it's not austerity it's not that you balance the economy on the backs of the poor you make sure that you do it in a way that's genuinely sustainable and that doesn't increase inequality and what does that mean well, it probably means more progressive taxation system. We'll have to see how the economy has rebalanced at that point. I mean, actually, one of the things that I'm really pushing is education and retraining. Because if you've got people, not just 18 to 24 year olds, and by the way, I'm really, really worried about that year group, um, uh, that, that group in, in society. If you look back at the 2008-9 crash, they were the ones whose wages never recovered and their career prospects were never the same again. So I'm really worried about them, but actually I'm genuinely worried about people in their 40s and 50s whose industries may well be about to go under. And we're looking at big ones like aviation, but also Brexit's going to affect the car industry. I've got BMW in my constituency, lots of workers who are worried about their jobs. Um, and there's going to be a rapid change. You combine that with, we'd already been predicting that 40% of jobs might go because of automation and AI. And you combine those two things together, we are going to be looking at a really difficult time in our economy. So we need to invest now in not just build, build, build houses and roads, and actually roads, I would argue, is absolutely the wrong thing to be investing in or trains or whatever. Actually, our human infrastructure is just as important. And that's what we should be focusing on now. But once we have this sort of bill, you know, a Lib Dem party led by you would, would not repeat austerity it would it would it would favor taxes on on what about a wealth tax or something like that obviously Indeed. in the past the, the Lib Dems have had a mansion tax would it be that sort of thing well we'll have to see what it looks like at that point and where the wealth is but actually as a party generally we have been in the past 
favouring wealth taxes. I think a, mod a modest carbon tax is also probably on the cards. I mean, it's not party policy yet, and it would be wrong of me, Matt, to, uh, on a podcast like this. For any Lib Dem member listening, it is the party that makes the policy and not the leader, so make no mistake. But I think we also need to be careful with things like carbon taxes because they can be not progressive. Um, so if you uh, start taxing everyone for their energy use, actually, it's, if you think about energy bills, for someone who's on a decent wage, it's a small percentage of what they're spending. But actually, for someone on bare minimum, it's actually quite a large percentage. So my own view is that we should be focusing on on business and, and, and bigger earners for now. And then as we start to insulate people's homes, and by the way, insulating homes planting trees, rewilding, plowing money into renewables, all of these things are brilliant at giving people jobs. So it's absolutely the right thing to be doing right now. And it is no, uh, it's, 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 you don't have to have either a green recovery or a, 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 a hit to the economy. It's actually the best way of getting out of this mess is to be green and is to invest in the green economy. So the two go hand in hand. And actually on this issue, from what I've been hearing from the party as a whole, we are very much moving in this direction. And then if you want to go into a conversation about land value taxation, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so just, just on the leadership contest then, I mean, we talked about it a bit at the start, just practically how it's surreal to, to be running for a leader of a party, basically, from your living room. You don't do office. it for your own health, believe me. No. <laughs> it's um, a surreal thing. Obviously, the Lib Dems have had some quite fierce leadership contests in the past. I remember Chris Hoon and Nick Clegg was... That got very tense um, when that piece of paper was produced on the Sunday Politics or whatever the show was called back then. How are related... Yeah, see, I wasn't, I wasn't there at the time. So people tell me about this, yeah. but I, I wasn't there. Yeah. Well, it's worth... You can probably see it on YouTube. It's a great piece of... Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll look at drama. it, yeah. How are relations between the two contenders, between you and Ed Davey? Well, do you know what? It's really hard at the moment just because we're barely seeing each other physically. And so it's all through meetings. But I have no doubt that when this is all over, and yeah, it's probably going to get tense. And I've recognising that and also recognising how tetchy people are at the moment through coronavirus. Um, and people are going to be at each other's throats online. And that is a forum where people tend to be maybe less polite than they might be in real life. <laughs> yeah. Um, so for my own campaign, I've put forward a clean campaign pledge where I've instructed anyone who's part of my campaign to be respectful. You know, you play the ball, not the man. The job is to not feed the trolls. If someone's baiting you online, try not to. Now, of course, it's difficult and you don't have everyone officially affiliated to your campaign either. You can have supporters who you don't have any influence over. They're going to do what they like. Um, but I think it's really important. We are a small party. There's only 11 MPs. And at the end of it, I would hope that everyone can see that I am going to need Ed and Ed's going to need me. And in fact, that's going to be a really important moment for the party, no matter who wins, that we we won't because that would be wrong, because that's uh, not social distanced, but metaphorically lock hands and walk off together in, into the sunlight and say, right, we are going to do this together. And I think as a party, everyone, you know, we are arguing stuff out and that's normal. Um, but at the end of it, I've no doubt that as a party, that's where we're going to get to. There's been, a, as there is with every candidate, but, you know, people, inevitably when you stand for leadership, people are interested in you and your background and your life and things like that. And obviously there have been a couple of stories about you that are personal. I mean, do you, 
how do you feel about that do you, do you feel comfortable talking about those things or, or is that a kind of downside of being a politician so there's more than a couple um, and the reason why there's, there's more but the reason why there's more than a couple is because actually i i can see it from both sides so on the one hand i kind of i approach politics from someone who's not actually that interested initially in politics when i was a teenager i was into physics i'm a sci-fi geek i went to imperial <laughs> I spent most of my career outside the Westminster bubble teaching kids about astro astronomy and maths and physics. And that was what I loved. And I came to politics because I got really incensed about educational inequality and wanting to do something about it. And so I joined the party in 2007 because I just couldn't stand by anymore while I saw this country as a G7 country that's got lots of money have kids who still leave without functional reading and writing that was really the first thing that that made me interested in politics in, in a party political sense anyway um and so as i think to to where i want to go now i mean i just feel like i want people to see that not all politicians are the same not all politicians have the same background and look the same and are in it for themselves and the expenses scandal and then you know the the eating from the trough and all of that just makes me feel so sad because there's actually a lot of people in parliament that are different that have backgrounds that aren't what people expect and i'm one of them and i break that mold so as part of that i think it's important to talk about your background in your life and so i've spoken about my as i said already on the podcast like my fights with depression um, the fact that I was obese uh, through most of my childhood, and that was really, really hard. Um, and, you know, more recently, my uh, girlfriend and I were out, were threatened to be outed uh, by a, a Sunday newspaper. And I just really, I got a heads up from them because they wanted a quote. And the thing for me about that that was just so distasteful was, first of all, my family knew, my close family, but actually there were members of my extended family that didn't. But second of all, wake up and smell the coffee. It's 2020. Like, what kind of society makes you think that this is going to be a splash? So I took control. And so I, I took the story. I took it to some other papers who actually also agreed with me that this was utterly ridiculous. And I'm now out and proud as a, as a member of the LGBTQ plus community. And the fact is, I don't think most people care. And the best <laughs> bit about that, the best bit about that was the reaction where the vast, vast majority of people were like, meh. <laughs> and I think that's great. Well, that's so good because it's, I still think, and it's really good to know that that's been the reaction. I would hope that would be the reaction. But I just think it's so sad for politicians of any era to have had to talk about, you know, heterosexual politicians don't have to have that conversation. No. It feels really unfair that it's a talking point. But I suppose in a way, when you're a politician, the advantage you have of talking about it is that you're helping other people know that politics is diverse, as you say, but it must help other people that are LGBTQ or pansexual or whatever the words are. It must help those people to see people in positions of power and responsibility that can succeed, that can achieve things, and it, and it doesn't hold you back. I hope so. And I hope not just it doesn't hold you back, I mean, I hope people can see that because of the experience that I've described, actually, I'm strong because of them. You know, the politics right now, the rough and tumble of politics as it is now in this country, which is very personality driven, 
you know, no matter who you are, you've got the trolls online, no matter what you do, there's always someone who's going to criticize you. Actually, what it's made me is really sure of who I am and really resilient to whatever knocks you're going to get. And I'd be kidding myself. And I think anyone will be kidding themselves if they think that the leader of the Liberal Democrats isn't occasionally going to get attacked by right wing trolls in the press. Like that is part and parcel of, of what it is. And if I wouldn't, I don't think honestly I would have gone for this job if I wasn't absolutely sure that I could weather that. Because unless you can be strong and positive through those kinds of knocks, then you shouldn't be doing this. Um, and it is at the end of it, hopefully something positive. And I think the story for me that I feel most proud of telling is actually how I had an operation to deal with my obesity. And I had a bariatric operation. I first mentioned it, actually it was about two years ago, I think. Um, it came up on any questions. It's one of those you know, like final fun questions that come up on any questions. What, have, and, you, had um, a, have you had gastric surgery? Yeah. What, that was genuinely it was, the question. It was, it was, it was, it was a long, it was something about obesity strategy. And I was one of the, I was first or second, I can't remember. It just came out. I, I didn't plan to talk about wow. it. But the context of the question was such that I said, you know what, this debate needs to change. And I've been through this and this is what I've been through. And afterwards I got contacted. I got deluged by people who either were thinking about doing something like that or had done it but had felt ashamed that they were even going through that. And actually the whole debate around obesity in this country right now is still quite toxic. I mean, if you think you look at the news and you have a story about obesity strategy and what you see are close in pictures of people's bellies as they're walking down a road and it's never told in a way of compassion and sees the person behind what's going on and and I felt that so keenly when I was growing up and I just feel like for people to see someone in a position that I'm in now and then to know that that actually I've achieved that and having gone through all of that they they see it as an ability it's a talking point it's something that they can then say well she's done it so let me use that as a way of broaching the subject with my friends and family and it was the same with coming out and actually one of the most beautiful emails I got was a, a young man who emailed in my, into my office the day afterwards and he was like I need to let you know um, that because of what you did you gave me the strength to be able to use your story to then have the conversation with my parents and I came out the next day and I was oh, just wow. like you know no matter what how difficult it was for me I've made someone else's life just that teeny tiny teeny weeny bit easier the next day and it's worth it do you think it's easier to be pansexual or, or, or easier to be a Lib Dem in, in Britain in 2020 <laughs> much easier to be pansexual goodness and the funny thing about the word pansexual when I picked it and it was it was a bit like I was like oh okay because I, I hadn't been with um a woman before and and I was looking through and actually my my view of life is, is actually pretty liberal in that I see a person and I don't really see gender or whatever. And so I didn't I felt like I, I was reading through what what are the different words that could describe this? Yeah. And that just really resonated with me because it was what it means. It just means you see the person and it doesn't. I could have picked bisexual, I guess. Um, and it means the same thing bluntly. But. For whatever reason it resonated but it started that conversation because i think a lot of people hadn't really heard that word before and frankly until i started researching it i hadn't either 
<laughs> so it's not like you, you come out of your mum's womb and there's this label that gets given to you and it's in your back pocket and you just didn't really know it was there. It's just, you know, it's a random label that society has given this and I've decided to, to try it on for size. Um, but I hope what it also shows people is these labels are completely meaningless as well. And actually all we're trying to do is as people be happy and lead our best lives. And actually, is there no better liberal message than that? Which is that all the labels don't really matter. And in the end, whether you are pansexual or Lib Dem or something else entirely, actually you should vote Lib Dem because we are the party that says it doesn't matter what you choose so long as you're happy and so long as you feel that it's the right choice for you. Leila Moran, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, there you go, Leila Moran. As I said at the start, I'll be joined next week by Ed Davey, her counterpart. One of those two will end up being leader of the Liberal Democrats. And it'd be really interesting to see whether they can succeed in moving on from the past and and delivering a new future for the Lib Dems, which, which involves perhaps more parliamentary success than they've had for the last few years. Uh, email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com with any of your thoughts. Let me know where you listen. Uh, and if you've got any suggestions for any guests, or indeed you work for someone that would like to come on, or you are someone that would like to come on, uh, then then get in touch. And if you can find the time, and you can find it within your heart, to leave an iTunes review, I would be very grateful, because it's the single best way to get the show up the charts, and it, and it helps. Oh, and hit subscribe as well, that helps. And it just means other people can find these conversations, listen to them, and engage with politics. Um, So, uh, yes, it's good to be back. And I will see you next week with Ed Davey. Ta-ra. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.